Well, as Steve mentioned, today is the day that the nation celebrates what is called Father's Day and honors our uh, fathers. And um, not long ago, it was Mother's Day. Um, I did not uh, present a lesson pertaining to mothers on Mother's Day, so I dare not present a lesson today <laughs> pertaining to fathers. So... We will present a lesson dealing with parents, and just include both. How's that? I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of the heroes of the faith, as it is sometimes called, or by similar designations. And indeed, it is a great chapter that depicts the faithfulness of so many of of God's people, but included there are two people that perhaps are not studied as frequently and thoroughly as some of the others in this chapter, like Abraham and uh, Noah. And those two people are found in verse 23 of Hebrews 11. Let's read together verses verses 23 through 26 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now we shift to the faith of Moses in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, as the New King James renders it, the pleasures of sin for a season, as the King James renders it. Then verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. These are very powerful and poignant verses, specifically as they relate to the power of faithful parents, beginning in verse 23. Notice again, verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. So in verse 23, there is no reference, obviously, to the faith of Moses when he was born. Little babies don't have any faith, obviously. Faith came to Moses later. But what we want to emphasize in the first part of our lesson today especially, is the faith that was present in his parents. Because it was faith that prompted them to hide that newborn child for three months. Now, the background of this text is back in Exodus chapter 2. You remember that after Joseph and his death, there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt that did not know Joseph, that is, who was not favorably inclined to Joseph and to Joseph's descendants, obviously. And the Israelite people were growing in number, much to the consternation of that new Pharaoh. And ultimately, ultimately, after placing upon them great burdens and making their task as hard as he could and realizing they were still growing in number, still multiplying, that the king of Egypt, the 
Pharaoh decreed that every son who was born would be cast into the river. Every daughter would be able to be saved alive. Well, we know that the text there in chapter 1 of Exodus tells us that the midwives did not comply. The Hebrew midwives did not comply with Pharaoh's command. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we're introduced to a man of the house of Levi who went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. We're introduced now to Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed. And the text continues, so the woman conceived and bore a son. And of course, this was not their only child. We know that Miriam and Aaron were also the children of Amram and Jochebed. She conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. This would have been after the birth of Aaron and Miriam, actually. Remember? Because they were older. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And you are well familiar, I am sure, with what followed and how Pharaoh's daughter came to the river and found the child. If you go over, continuing with some background information, to Numbers chapter 26, verse 59 of Numbers 26 tells us the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram she bore Aaron and Moses and their sister Miriam. And we are well familiar with what transpired. And so that's the background against which we look at verse 23 of Hebrews 11, which tells us that under this decree and under threat of of no doubt losing their own lives because we could logically conclude that there would have been some punishment had Pharaoh or the Egyptians determined or discovered that they were not complying with his decree, that they could have very well lost their lives. But the inspired writer tells us, by faith, by faith, they hid this child for three months. That indicates their faith was a courageous faith. In a few moments, we're going to see how it became a contagious faith. And that ultimately, it allowed their son Moses to exhibit a conquering faith. And to have so much impact in the lives of so many people. And to do such a great work for the God of heaven. But these were courageous parents. These were parents who had more faith in God and more reverential fear of God than they did dread and terror of this particular Pharaoh. And there was something about this child. Yes, the text says he was a a beautiful child, but there was something about this child that indicated to them the divine favor of God and that God had something good in store. Now, since the text says that it was by faith that they hid him, And we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, it would not be too much to assume that God had communicated something to these parents concerning the future of this particular child. He was a child that was pleasing to God, a beautiful child. The ancients had the idea that 
that kind of beauty certainly indicated divine favor and that there was something special that awaited the child. But in this case, I think based upon the phrase by faith and what we know about faith and how faith comes, there was something more than just the beauty of the child that gave them that indication and that bolstered their courage to defy Pharaoh and to obey the king of kings, the Lord himself. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, in his speech before the Sanhedrin just prior to his stoning, mentions this incident and says in verse 20 of Acts 7, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. Well-pleasing to God. The original indicates literally fair to God. He was fair to God. There was something about the child that was communicated or indicated to these parents that gave them the courage by faith to risk their very lives in hiding this child for as long as they could. And then, obviously, for some reason, and we're not told what the reasons are, we're not given a lot of detail, we're not told, perhaps, the, the lung capacity, as I read on, from someone of a, of a young boy, when, uh, when he hits three months old, might have been a little hard to hide all that noise from, uh, from the uh, Egyptians. But the circumstances changed to the extent that Jochebed put him in that ark of bulrushes and set him afloat by faith, obviously, trusting God that all things would work out. And indeed, they did. Faithful parents hid this child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. A courageous faith. But then we see a contagious faith as we look at the next verses that describe what transpired with Moses as he grew to manhood. And verse 24 tells us, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, here he refused. He denied something and he decided something. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer suffer affliction with the people of God. What do you think provided the basis for that decision. And think with me about the difficulty of that decision when you consider what Moses had growing up. He was in the lap of luxury without question. He was in the most enviable position that anyone could have been in at that point in time. And yet when a certain point in time came, he made a choice. He decided to deny all of that luxury, all of that power, all of that prestige, and chose, verse 25, to suffer affliction with the people of God. Why did he have such an affinity at this point in time for the people of God? He had not been influenced greatly by the people of God as a whole. Who were the people of God that planted within him that strong desire and that faith that ultimately allowed him to make the right decision. It had to go back to his parents. 
it had to go back to his parents. Because you remember how God, through his providence, worked it out when Jochebed set him afloat in that ark of bulrushes and the son of Pharaoh's daughter came, uh, or, or rather Pharaoh's daughter came down and realized that this beautiful child was there and was asked, do you want me to find a Hebrew, one of her attendants, do you want me to find a Hebrew to, to nurse him for you? And guess who that Hebrew turned out to be? His mother, wasn't it? His mother. And no doubt his father had an influence as well during those formative years. And in those formative years, they obviously planted within him a love for God and a love for God's people that despite all of the luxury, all of the advantages, everything that he had at his disposal, that when it came time to make a choice, he made the right choice. He chose the people of God. The Egyptians were not the people of God. He had been reared in their presence and been given everything by by the, the daughter of Pharaoh, who obviously loved him dearly and cared for him, Very well. And yet, the Egyptians were not the people of God. And Moses had been brought up to love the people of God. And therefore, he made the proper choice. The late Burton Kaufman wrote about this incident, and three others that I thought was extremely beautifully written material that I'd like to share some thoughts from with you today. As he wrote about this particular incident with Moses and the decision that he made, he talked about some other Royal refusals, he called them. Royal refusals. Think about that for a few moments. And the significance of those refusals. There are four royal persons that the late Brother Kaufman mentioned, each of whom made a notable refusal. Who were those four? Moses was one. Who was another? David, another, Daniel, and of course Jesus. These were four royal persons who made royal refusals. We're looking at one of them here today in some detail. Moses refused to be called the the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, as David, the young David, was about to go forth to face the Philistine giant, Saul, the first king of Israel, had offered to him the royal armor. And you remember, David put it on. And then he very shortly thereafter took it off. Because he said, I haven't tested this armor, and I can't do this. He refused the royal armor. And he chose instead his trusted slingshot and five smooth stones. He only needed one as it turned out, to bring down the giant. 
And then, what about Daniel? In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, what do you read about there with Daniel? Remember, he was in Babylonian captivity, having been taken as a member of the royal family, Daniel was, having been taken to Babylon. And he was chosen as one of those who would be groomed to be in the king's court, to be a special servant. And there was special food that he was to partake of along with these other youths, including Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, after this food that would have violated the commandment of God for him to eat it, he said, or the uh, scripture says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He had confidence in God, and you remember that as the account continues, he said, you let us eat what we can rightfully eat according to God's commandments. You let us do that for ten days, and then you look at us and see how we're doing compared to the others. And they were better than any of the others, because God blessed them for their faithfulness. Another royal refusal. And then finally, Jesus. Jesus refused the popular efforts to make him an earthly king. In John chapter 6, verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. Jesus refused to be made an earthly king. Brother Kaufman asked this question in relation to these four royal refusals. He asked, are these the four great refusals in history? Due to the conditions surrounding each of these great crisis decisions and to the epic results that flowed out of each one of them, they must be hailed as decisive victories of the human soul over what? Over temptation, making them stand forever as inspirational examples of the Christian who in the probation of life often finds the dreadful difficulty of saying no. That's the challenge we face as Christians. The challenge of saying no. But Brother Kaufman continues, each of the four refusals noted here was made by an old man, right? No. Every one of them. Every one of the refusals, every one was made by a man in the vigor of life. And each involved a rejection of royalty. Moses rejected the royal adoption. He had it made. He had it made. He'd been adopted by by the daughter of Pharaoh. He refused the royal adoption. David in 1 Samuel 17 refused the royal armor. Daniel refused the royal table. Oh, how many goodies were there to feast upon? 
And he refused the royal table. And Jesus refused the royal crown. He refused to be made an earthly king. And oh, how many lessons come from a study of these refusals. Christians have to forego being adopted by the world. We've got to prevent being adopted by the world, fashioned according to the world. What did Paul write in Romans 12, verse 2, 1 and 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You have got to refuse the adoption of the world. Separate yourself from worldly allegiances and determined to undergo the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. The world is nothing but evil. That is, the things that are worldly. 1 John 5 and verse 19, The whole world lies in wickedness, John wrote. When you choose the worldly, you choose the wicked. We're not to allow ourselves to be spotted by it. James 1.27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We're not to be so enamored with its wisdom that we get caught up in academia and lose sight of the most important things in life. The wisdom of the world, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, is foolishness with God. We're not to love the world. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then John says, and the world is passing away with its lust. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Moses understood that. David understood that. Daniel understood that. And Jesus, obviously, perfectly understood that. We're not to become friends of this world. James 4, verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you see how much is written in Scripture? About worldliness? How many passages there are that warn against being taken in by the things of this world? Here's what we're to do with the world. Crucify it. Galatians six fourteen. Paul said, I refuse to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. That's the attitude that we're to have toward the world. 
we've got to reject the world's adoption and receive the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, verse 6. Ephesians 1 and verse 5. And then the late Brother Kaufman concludes some comments in such a beautiful way, I thought, as he applies it to us today so beautifully and poignantly in saying, like David, Christians should reject the armor of this world, preferring the whole armor of God, Ephesians six fourteen. Like Daniel, they should reject the world's dainty fare and like Jesus, any crown the world might offer, preferring the incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 8, the crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, verse 4, and the crown of life, Revelation 2, and verse 10, where the Lord through John said, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. The courageous faith of Moses' parents led to a contagious faith that manifested itself in their son. Will that always be the case? Will it always be the case that faithful parents will produce faithful children? No. But the responsibility of parents is to be faithful nonetheless. And even if those children become unfaithful, the faith of parents needs to be steady and steadfast and constant in the fervent hope and with the perpetual prayer that those children will one day return to the faith that was initially instilled in them by faithful parents. We have to understand and appreciate that despite the best era efforts of many faithful parents, children do not always remain faithful. Parents should not be too hard on themselves in that situation at all. And why is it that children do not always remain faithful? Because the world is a powerful force. The pleasures of sin are just that, pleasurable. But they are also, as this text reminds us, seasonal. And all that this world has to offer will pass away. But what the next world offers will never pass away. That's why we need to devote ourselves to loving the things of the next world rather than the things of this world. And to let our children know at whatever stage they are and wherever they may be spiritually that we're going to be where we've always been. Praying for them to return if they have departed. Thanking God for them if they have not. But making sure that indeed we understand that the thing that overcomes the world is faith. 1 John 5, verse 4.
And in that text, John reminds us of something that we've learned from the life of Moses and so many other great heroes of the faith in this 11th chapter of Hebrews. And that is, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What about your faith this morning? Is it a faith that is based upon hearing, and hearing the Word of God, of course? It cannot be a faith that is based upon feeling alone, but a faith that has to be based on testimony, based on evidence. Romans ten seventeen. so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. What should I hear from the Word of God to produce that faith? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believing that with all of my heart, John eight twenty four, or being prepared to die in my sins, Jesus said. Believe that I am he or die in your sins. But it cannot be faith alone. That is the conquering faith about which we've studied this morning. But a faith that moves us to repent of our sins. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will at all in like manner perish, Luke thirteen three. And so we have to change our mind about our life, change our direction. We must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Matthew ten thirty two, And we must be baptized for the remission of sins. Despite what most of the religious world tells us about baptism, the Lord tells us this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark sixteen sixteen. That is the faith that is courageous, that is contagious, if indeed right-thinking people will heed it. And it is the faith and the only faith that will ultimately overcome the world. Is that your faith this morning? If not, it can be. If you'll respond to the evidence. You need to come home to your first love as a wayward child who has once known that conquering faith, but has been now conquered by the world. You can still do something about that, and we plead with you to do so in repentance and confession of sin as we stand to sing to encourage you. Will you come?